The other really interesting thing is all of the things that validate you in the Bay Area. The thing about moving abroad is like they no longer validate you. If you're going to be interesting to an auto driver in India, you really just have to be interesting because he doesn't give a shit that you went to school at Berkeley or worked at Stripe. Like all of these symbols mean nothing. Welcome to Worth. If you're new, this podcast is a platform for young people in tech to share their unique stories. In this episode, I'm joined by Vidika Jain, Chief of Staff at Weekend Fund and a former employee of Stripe and TrueLayer. Among other things, we discuss advice she received from Harry Stebbings on breaking into venture, ways in which Weekend Fund is looking to help founders from underserved markets, and which she believes makes a problem worth solving. Hope you enjoy. Vedika, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Really excited to share your story with our listeners. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by discussing something that you tweeted recently. That is definitely a pretty contrarian viewpoint in today's society. So you and your brother made a pact that you would never send your kids to a traditional school and would instead opt for homeschooling. I'm curious to hear what is your thought process on the primary advantages of homeschooling versus something more traditional like the process that you or I went through? Right. So I should say, firstly, my brother and I are far away from having kids. So (laughs) (laughs) this might change. And I guess we'll kind of try to update our beliefs on this as we go. Also, the pact was that we're not going to send our kids to traditional school, but I think in terms of like where the pact actually came from, Farad and I, Farad's my little brother, we both went to school in India and it was a fairly traditional schooling and it didn't work for us when it came to learning. Like Farad, for example, was like constantly kind of getting into trouble. He'd have these conversations with teachers, which was like, have you done the homework? And then the, and Farad would be like, well, why is it important? that I do the homework. And, and that's when he'd just get kicked out of class. Like that's when that conversation would end. Instead, he was trying to go like, okay, well, you're asking me if I've done the homework because you want to test me on the concepts. So why don't you just go ahead and test me on the concepts or give me an opportunity to apply the concepts. But I think some of the things with the education system is firstly, I, I, I'm not sure how different schools are in the US, but like in India, we were basically just front loading a lot of information that we weren't actually using it then. And we actually had no motivation to use. I think maybe there's a version of the education system in which at the beginning of the year, and all the kids come together and they make a list of problems that they themselves are experiencing or their families are experiencing or their friend groups and actually dedicate the year solving some of those problems and acquiring the skills along the way so at least they're motivated to solve the problem and you're not just like front-loading all of this information without like a way to apply it. One year we did this experiment in social studies class where the whole class was student-run so every history module that we learned about like this is India, so we were learning about Indian history, and my group was in charge of the Mughal Empire. So we taught the class. So we made the handouts, the tests, the lesson plan, everything, and I still remember everything. 
about the Mughal Empire. And I just wouldn't say if I had that experience in social studies in any other years. That's interesting. And this idea of potentially involving students um, in the ideation of what we teach in our schools is something that I think can be really motivating. So um, you, uh, you come over to the States for college and you attend UC Berkeley where you study economics. Right. Uh, and you wrote right. something a few years ago about your college experience that really stuck out to me. And you said, we did lots of problem sets in my economics classes, but right. I didn't think there were any real problems in the problem sets. Right. I'd love to unpack that a little bit and right. hear about your college experience kind of on the whole. Yeah, I would say there's a, quite a story of how I got to Berkeley. But basically, my parents wanted me to go to college here in the UK because I went to elementary school in London. And they just like were not coming around to the idea that I wanted to go to school in the US. And then do you remember we had like, there was a deadline to pay the deposit for college and then the housing deposit and so on. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I obviously didn't have like the $5,000 or whatever it was to pay that Berkeley deposit. Mm -hmm you don't at that age um so in a moment of courage I made the deposit using my dad's credit card without telling him and of course he found out like a second later because it was the largest ever outgoing transaction from that credit card but yeah like it almost didn't happen and I ended up going late to Berkeley and missing the orientation but I'm so grateful for my parents because they actually did come around and paid for Berkeley. And then my brother went to school in the U.S. and they paid for that. And obviously, it's extremely challenging because they were earning in rupees and paying in dollars. And Berkeley was, I'd say overall, it's become so much of the way that I see the world. And there is a lot to be grateful for there. But we'd have these economics classes and then we'd have problem sets. And the reason I say there are no problems is all of these problem sets, the answers were already known, right? Like they probably weren't known to you in that second, but they were known. And to me, those are not real problems. Like if the answer is clear, to me, that's not a problem. Interesting. So in other words, a really good problem is one that's personally meaningful to you, but it's also one in which there's no clear answer. Because at that point, yeah. So yeah, exactly. And that's like, I mean, that's what motivates you, right? To go solve it. Like Weekend Fund, for example, is not investing in companies that are solving known problems. Because where is the risk in that? Absolutely. And there's certainly not a ton of money in investing in something that's very consensus and simple to solve. So it's... A bit ironic to me that the way that you ended up coming to Berkeley was through using your dad's credit card to yeah. make this initial payment because after college, you end up landing a job with Stripe in San Francisco, which is obviously a company that's very well regarded in the startup ecosystem right. and in the payment space. So what were you working on there and what did you learn about the types of work that you did or maybe didn't want to focus on moving forward in your career? Right. So I guess it's a part of the question, like why I chose Stripe to begin with. Mm -hmm. right. So before Stripe, the last semester of school, I had a little bit of time because I finished my classes, but I didn't want to graduate yet. So I ended up interning at this growth stage fund called Mithril Capital. And the interesting thing about this internship was they were two interns so me and this other girl called star 
And we were both about maybe 12 or 13 years younger than anybody on that investment team. And they were so generous in that they really tried, and Ajay especially, who runs the fund, like tried to teach Dara and I everything that they kind of knew about the world. Like in a way, we were like their little project <laughs> for the semester. And I was talking to Ajay um, about what I should do next after this internship. And he was like, well, what do you think is true about the world? And I was like, well, I don't know a lot about a lot, but I do know the bulk of all commerce is moving online, right? Like that was obvious to everyone. And I was like, great. Well, you know, the company that's working on that problem. And I was like, okay, it's Stripe. So I ended up joining Stripe after school and I was there for a year and Stripe was going explosively fast at this time. It was between the fall of 2015 and the fall of 2016. And I worked on the risk team at Stripe. And the risk team, it was 15 people in San Francisco, half engineering, half non-engineering, managing risk for about $20 billion of payment volume. I ended up learning a lot. And the thing I was like really trying to maximize for, I guess, was I'd read this article, not this article, it's like the PMARCA Guide to Career Planning. So uh, basically, he has this guide to career planning. And one of the ideas he talks about was think of your career as a portfolio of things, like as a portfolio of investments. And, you know, you're trying to maximize for certain things. And earlier on in your career, you really want to maximize for the rate that you're learning and acquiring new skills. And the one thing they were really good about at Stripe was acquisition of new skills, but almost at like company scale, like everyone wrote SQL, for example. I can't remember what the stats were, but like 80 to 90% of the company had written use SQL like at least once in the last month. And actually the interesting thing with that team was most of us actually ended up learning how to code. Some of us became even the non-engineering side, like software developers and data engineers. Someone joined the machine learning team at Stripe. It was almost like it was half job, half education. And we were getting paid for it. It was great. It was just a great setup. And the engineering half of the team, they were really building internal tools for the analyst half of the team. So really like kind of felt that power of building tools using code and being able to do my job better with it. And it was like the tightest feedback loop because the engineers would jump into all of the meetings with us and we'd constantly be testing out improvements to the dashboard and like post-mortem risk losses and then figure out what tooling we're going to build from it. It's like a very like good case study in, you know, how internal tools can help people do their jobs better to like an insane degree. So much leverage, right? Like 15 people managing risk by $20 billion of payment volume. And all of, all of these people except one was in San Francisco. So that was my time at Stripe. Then I ended up losing the H-1B visa. And at the time I was like, no, I want to live in San Francisco for like 200 years. This thing is being taken away from me. But I think in hindsight, it was probably the best thing that happened to me professionally too, because I left San Francisco, took a gap year in India, read a lot of books, hung out with my parents, wasted a fair amount of time, learned how to code, moved to Berlin. The other really interesting thing is 
all of the things that validate you in the Bay Area, the thing about moving abroad is like they no longer validate you. If you're going to be interesting to an auto driver in India, you really just have to be interesting because he doesn't give a shit that you went to school at Berkeley or worked at Stripe. Like all of these symbols mean nothing to him. And that was really interesting um, as an experience to me. And I think it set me up pretty well to move to London after that. So I want to dig into, I guess, that gap year and your learning how to code a little bit. So yeah, your visa. Um, in 2017, yeah. you attend a coding bootcamp called The Wagon in Berlin. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, it's French. I still don't know how to say Le Wagon. I'm definitely butchering that. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. I, so, think, I think they'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious to hear a little bit about your experience at Le Wagon. But I guess what kind of drew you to this coding bootcamp? Uh, what did that look like for you? Well, um, a part of the motivation, I guess I should just be completely transparent, was my ex-boyfriend. I'd met him in Bangalore and he lived in Berlin. So that was a part of the motivation for moving to Berlin. And the other part of it was at Stripe, I just saw how powerful building things out of basically nothing and writing code can be. And I was like, well, I want some of that. I want to be able to do that. So Lebegan, I think was, I think eight or nine weeks. And the thing that really stood out to me from that experience is firstly, immersive learning really works. I think as you grow older, the classes that you take are like one or two hours a week. Whereas like the wagon was like 10 hours a day, every day for nine weeks or something like that. And it really gives you an opportunity to get into flow every single day. So that's interesting to me. And something I've thought a lot about, like you said, Medica is just the sense that in school, even up through college, we're running around trying to focus on so many different things. Right. Kind of curious to see a model more like a coding bootcamp model in which maybe you're spending an entire semester at Berkeley focusing just on one subject. And the next right. semester, maybe you move on to something else in the sense that you could potentially spend the same volume of time on a subject, but your understanding is just going to be so much deeper because you're able to focus um, kind of singularly on that one thing. Right. And I think it also, you know, have you heard of like the whole maker manager schedule right uh, like yeah the program yeah exactly so the way college is structured is your time is kind of being arbitrarily divided up into these one hour blocks of course like the good thing is it's less structured than high school um but still you have these blocks where it's like oh it's 11 o'clock and it's time to learn physics and then it's twelve thirty, and then it's time to learn chemistry and i just don't think that that's how you learn because what if at 12, 15, you start to get really into something? Like you should have the time to go deep into things and wide into things and see man and see men, kind of like in the way that we navigate information and the internet, right? Like things are hyperlinked. So you have a chance to kind of double click and go into that and then zoom out and then open another tab and Google something that you're curious about. And I think that's actually feels like a far more effective way to learn because you're coming up with the questions and then you're answering the questions, coming up with another mini question and answering them. So I would love to talk more about maker versus manager, particularly in the context of weekend fund a bit later. Um, But for now, just to kind of double click into, I guess, your experience after this coding bootcamp. Sure. 
you land a job with another company working in the banking API space called TrueLayer. Uh, these guys are a little newer than Stripe. They launched in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but this time you're working in a product role uh, and you're working in London rather than SF. So after going through this low wagon curriculum, what was it like to get your hands dirty and actually be involved with building and shipping product for TrueLayer? Yeah, good question. So I wasn't hired in a product role at TrueLayer. I was like, I think the sixth or seventh person to join. So, you know, kind of organically started talking to customers and thinking about their problems and which ones we're solving and which ones we're not. And what are the ones they're not actually telling us about, but, you know, we could solve. So it's a very kind of organic transition into product management. It was Great, because, you know, we kind of went from having um, no product in the market to having a beta product in the market and kind of iterating on that. And a lot of what makes the timing right for a company like TrueLayer is this thing called open banking in the UK. So the regulatory environment was also shifting below us and that was opening a lot more opportunities for companies to build fintech applications and other applications using TrueLayer's API. But the I think the thing that I like loved about it is probably the same thing I loved about Stripe. It's like when you're building an infrastructure company, you really get to be a team player, right? Like it's not even about you. It's about the applications that get built on your API and you're constantly seeing things being built and really early stage things as well both for payments and for accessing financial data. You kind of have some of that like buzz of early stage venture in that, you know, your customers tend to be early stage founders, especially as you're earlier in the life cycle of your company. You know, Stripe had PayPal as that incumbent. TrueLayer also has a company called Yodli and the companies that worked further along in their journey use Yodli. So we really got the younger product focused very like customer problem solving first type companies and that was great also the team grew in the two years i was there so we went from six people with the founders to about 70 plus people when i when i left two years later and it was really good education in not just the product manager side of things in terms of, you know, building things, getting it out there, getting feedback and, you know, learning how to do that loop tighter and better and faster, but also in terms of influencing people and rallying them to actually build things and kind of understanding incentives and when hierarchy comes into play, right? And that's got to be such an exciting experience to see an early stage company go from, you know, six or seven employees, maybe the founders and a couple other folks uh, and scale yeah. all the way up to 70. So I can see how that's very valuable. Yeah. For someone, you know, in your shoes now with weekend funds. So you're at TrueLayer for a couple of years, 2019 rolls around. Can you tell our listeners the story about how you initially got linked up with Ryan Hoover and why you were so excited about weekend fund and venture in general? So at the end of last year, I remembered what it was like to work at Mithril in that every day we'd have people come pitch to us different parts of the future that they wanted to build. And as venture capitalists, we would fundamentally believe in that part of the future they were trying to build or not. And where we believed them, we would, you know, 
put capital behind that belief or agreement and then help the company grow. And it's just such an optimistic place to be in. So I actually reached out to my friend, Harry Stebbings, who runs a podcast called 20 Minute VC. And one of the things that Harry said was, if you go and join one of the larger funds, because I was like, okay, I want to get back into venture. So I need to go be an associate at one of the bigger funds in London. Firstly, that is very competitive to do. And I I don't think I fully understood how to differentiate myself, at least not successfully. And Harry was like, okay, well, the way to do venture is, you know, you have to get people to trust you with their money and then you have to get other smart people to take your money. And whatever job that you do, make sure that in venture, make sure you're doing those two things. And I was like, okay, that's really good advice, like philosophically, but practically, what do I do? You know, there's already so few associate jobs, really hard for me to get any of them. I was like, okay, well, theoretically, the internet should make it easier to start doing the work you want to do without asking permission. And I was like, okay, well, what did venture capitalists do? Okay, well, they find companies to fund, then they figure out if they want to fund those companies And then they actually help those companies grow. And I was like, well, the first one, I don't really have capital or access. I maybe can't start that today. The second one, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I can kind of, you know, for companies that are announced on VC portfolio blogs or, you know, USV will basically like publish a version of their investment memo, I guess, announcing the investment and also kind of backing that up with, why they invested or just TechCrunch and other tech media that we all read where funding rounds get announced. I was like, okay, well, I could kind of see that as deal flow and start writing investment memos on these companies based on the information that's publicly available. Of course, I didn't have access to any kind of proprietary information like we do now when we're evaluating investments at Weekend Fund. When you were constrained in that way, like you will find everything about the company, about the space, about the idea maze, who's tried it, who's not, this person, how did they actually become the person that they are and why are they working on this company? And I started to just go really deep into these investment memos. And then um, I was just very, very lucky. And this is kind of something to think about for people who don't have a network and are kind of outside the ecosystem but Ryan reached out to Harry for recommendations when he was hiring for the role and Harry actually put us in touch and that's how I ended up at Weekend Fund and then I was doing it six months nights and weekends in addition to my day day job at TrueLayer but there kind of came a point where I was like I want to do more and more of this and also the nights were becoming shorter (laughs) And the weekends were also becoming shorter and was kind of taking over my life. So yeah, I guess Ryan and I both took a leap of faith and Ryan believed in me enough to offer me the job full time. And I've been doing it about three months full time now. So it's interesting that you actually started working with Ryan on nights and weekends. In a way, it's very fitting given that. Yeah, it's on hand. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about Weekend Build in a bit. But yeah. Ryan's obviously very heavy on founders and different projects that begin as a side project, you know, on the next Right, weekends. right. 
But for our, I guess for our listeners who might not be quite as familiar, can you give us a quick rundown of the types of founders or companies that Weekend Fund looks to invest in or kind of the mission of, uh, of Weekend Fund in general? So I guess the background on Weekend Fund itself was after Product Hunt got acquired by AngelList in 2017, you know, Ryan's thinking was at my day job in Product Hunt and also day job and nights and weekends is, I think, somewhat tricky language for someone like Ryan. He is capable of just having two full-time jobs, <laughs> unlike most other people. But his thinking was, in my day job, I'm watching thousands and tens of thousands of makers actually launch their products into the market. And I want to spend my nights and weekends investing in the best of those. And that's how weekend fund happened. And then there was the first fund that it was just him and me towards the tail end of that. And we invested in about 40 companies. We invest broadly. We're not sector focused or theme focused. But the thing that we are actually looking for is, or try to think a lot about, is platform and behavioral shifts that are kind of occurring in the world that open up opportunities for companies to exist. So in some ways, take the answer to the why now question we try to ask companies seriously. We invest in the first round of funding, whatever that's called these days. So the first fund, we were writing about 50 to 100K checks. And the second fund, we're writing 100 to 200K checks. We try to be experimental because Ryan and I are both product people. It's really how we see the world. And we're trying to figure out how to build the best investment product for our users, our portfolio companies and uh, portfolio company founders and the founders we talk to, but also future founders and other un underserved markets of future founders. And that kind of leads us to Weekend Build. So we ran an eight-week program last year that helped side project builders actually turn their side projects into companies. And the reason that we thought side project builders was a good starting point and underserved starting point was if you're building a side project, right, you're working on it nights and weekends after work where no one's looking and no one's paying you. So you're probably passionate about making it happen. You can also probably build because you likely can't afford to hire someone for your side project or it isn't yet worth that investment. And it's also probably a problem that you yourself are experiencing. And we're like, oh, that's a really good starting point for future founders and future companies. And we had about 650 companies apply to be a part of the project. We selected 10. And the way the program worked was we um, jumped on calls with the side project builders. We called them weekly stand-ups, but... We jump on from all around the world um, every Sunday at a fixed time. And it was like a problem solving session. A part of it was just to create accountability. So what did I say I'd do this week? What did I actually do? And then the last part, what I think was the most valuable part was, you know, what is the biggest problem or challenge you're facing and actually open that up to the group. And when you make your problem, my problem and everyone else's problem, I actually start feeling invested in you. And that creates like a sense of um, camaraderie. You know, we're all in this together. It was valuable in a lot of other ways. Side project builders 
for example, this was probably the first time they were actually talking about their side projects to a group of people and you know, having the practice of telling parts of that story over and over again every Sunday, I think also helps because you're going to be retelling this story to not just to investors like us, but to future hires you're going to make to your team every day when things go wrong, which they inevitably do. And to just constantly make people feel like they're part of this thing bigger than themselves that, that, that they're trying to make happen. So that was our experiment last year. I think what our motivation to run experiments is, you know, serving underserved future founders on the user side, but also on the fun side. Transparently, we are thinking about how to build leverage for the fund long term and how to differentiate and how to actually bring in a little bit more experimentation into the venture capital model. Because Ryan and I have done that as product people, we should be able to do that in the investing side of our lives as well. And I do think it's, <laughs> it's really important to note that you and Ryan, you know, do both come from product backgrounds. And yeah. This idea that bringing, I guess, a sense of experimentation and thinking through okay, what are the ways that we can actually iterate upon the funds that we're offering to entrepreneurs is something that's, uh, that's I think, potentially not explored enough in venture. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts, and we can talk about this in the context. We can fund or just venture capital as kind of an asset class. What do you see as ways that are potentially not thought of as much or really advantageous in terms of how can a venture capital firm differentiate itself and offer a product that's truly different from what else is on the market? The way we kind of broke it down was every experiment that we're going to run, we thought it should have a primary goal. And then we kind of broke down those primary goals. So we were like, one is create a strong public brand. Another is like capture high quality deal flow. The third is build stronger relationships with the other investors. The fourth is make other investment decisions. And the fifth is support our portfolio companies better. We're thinking about the job that we do. And then what we're trying to do is break that down and then pick one of those threads and really pull on it long enough so that, you know, we start to, uh, if we're talking about capturing high quality deal flow, for example, right? Like you see like a lot of experimentation in the, in the scout programs arena. Um, it feels like every venture capital fund has like some variation of a scout program or has thought about it. And um, for example, <clears throat> just thought experiment, right? Like what does a fully meritocratic scout network actually look like? Right, where anybody in the world can refer a deal to Weekend Fund, but how do we build up a system of trust? And we've thought through some like wild ideas. For example, maybe there's a world in which, you know, everybody has like a few credits to refer companies to Weekend Fund. And if we take any of those introductions, then you get more opportunities to do that. Or maybe like if you're looking to get into venture, you get to work on the deal with us right? Because this is a deal that you brought to the fund. So it feels right to say that you get to work on the deal with us. A part of me getting this job was being able to share these fantasy investment memos with people. But there's also a sense of even to get to the point where I could share that, where I got an opportunity to share that fantasy investment memo. My brother had to have known Harry Stabbings from Twitter who introduced me and Harry introduced me to Ryan, right? That is such a network kind of driven thing. And this idea you mentioned, Vedika, in terms of maybe this potential scout program where folks yeah. have credits, uh, yeah. and then if they are referring good deals to investors like yourself and Ryan, yeah. maybe they get a shot to continue to do so or even have 
the ability sure. to invest with weekend fund. I think it's a strong example of incentive alignment. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's definitely an interesting idea. Yeah. But I think that maybe some of the questions to ask to actually help you get to these thought experiments is what is the fully scalable version of this look like? Another thing we've been playing around with is founder to founder experiments, like peer to peer experiments, because we try to be as helpful as possible to our companies, but we don't have all of the answers, right? And a lot of the times the founder community is better set up to solve the problems of other founders, like first round review, for example, the entire publication, I think, is linked to this idea of like people who've done it before can help you do it better, or at least like figure out, you know, the common pitfalls and things like this. So we started to do like founder to founder problem solving sessions with our own community, with our own portfolio uh, founder community. So we had the first of those two sessions last week. Another theme we're going to explore a lot more deeply is actually building stronger relationships with other investors because we don't, you know, we don't need to lead deals. So that allows us to be team players with other investors because it's really not like a zero sum game. And we want to bring on other investors that will help the company be stronger. Like just thought experiment, like what happens if we fully share our deal flow with another investor for a month, right? What are the set of things that we, you know, want to prove or disprove? And then what do we actually learn from that? Like, I think you have to be somewhat pseudoscientific about it. It's like in the same way our companies are in that these experiments are about discovery. So you have to kind of take that discovery of it seriously in a way. Like, for example, we get lots of cold emails. A lot of other investors get cold emails. Maybe there's a way to actually collaborate with other investors. And, you know, we we basically have the same, like, let's say, type form on all of our websites that, like, link up to the same place. We have some sort of dashboard in the back end. We commit to spending half an hour a week uploading on these deals and then we have like a demo day or something like that where these founders get to like present but they're yeah and i love that you guys are bringing kind of this mindset of experimentation and kind of a growth mindset to weekend funds and what you guys are trying to do in the product that you're uh, you're offering entrepreneurs and i know we're running low on time here i guess more of a broad question what are some trends that you're thinking about when it comes to your own personal investment thesis in other words, looking 10, 20 years down the road, what are some spaces that you personally think are really exciting, but maybe aren't getting the, maybe the attention they deserve? Okay. So I think the ones that I think are getting the attention that they deserve actually depends who you ask, really. So we're actually really excited about the concept of upward mobility, whether it's in careers, school, also like the kind of passion economy side of things. I love this idea that it's getting easier and easier to build an audience and like monetize your passion. That's a space we're really excited about. We're starting to see a lot of companies in the note-taking and company knowledge building space. Organizing things in folders, for example, seems like really inefficient way to actually organize things because it's like a simple hierarchy system, but what you really want to be doing is bi-directionally linking ideas in your notes to each other and being able to surface those ideas when you most need them, right? So when you're like about to jump on a call with a founder, uh, maybe that founder has worked on a side project with 
a founder you spoke to in adjacent space six months ago, right? Like that is really helpful contact to know. Particularly that last item, uh, something that I've definitely given some thought to. Mainly yeah. the way that we think as human beings, it's not in these segmented folders that are completely separate from one another. Uh, and I yeah. think Rome Research is a product that I've yeah. not tried yet, but I've heard yeah. amazing things about in this space. Yeah, Just sure. in the sense that it's like for you and Ryan, you guys are about to hop on the phone with a founder. You want those thoughts to be connected and easily accessible to you. You don't want to be clicking on different things, going down these alternate unconnected paths, you know? Totally correct. Rome has like a bit of a... I feel like already has like a built a bit of a cult following in like the note taking and, you know, like knowledge organizing enthusiast community, which is great for them. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I'm kind of seeing on Twitter just how, how all in these early adopters are kind of in yeah. this way that like superhuman users just love the product. Yeah. I was reading some rim research reviews of the product. And some of these reviews are like maybe 10 pages of writing. And imagine like how intensely you have to feel about a product to put out 10 pages of writing about it on the internet. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. They're just raving about it. <laughs> yeah. So Vedika, kind of the last question here that Ethan and I like to ask all our guests on the show, what are some of your favorite books and podcasts and how yeah. do they change the way that you see the world? So I'd say my favorite books. Um, so When Breath Becomes Air um, by Paul Kalanithi. So it's basically like um, the author Paul's search for meaning as he's dying. And what I really took away from that book is you need to figure out what makes life meaningful for you. And it's different from different people. Right? I think a part of why the Bay Area actually feels homogenous is the answer to what makes life meaningful for people in the Bay Area is like approximately the same. Whereas if you live in a city like London, I will run into people where it's like, I really cannot relate, if I'm being completely honest, to what makes life meaningful for you. But I'm so glad we live in the same city because you challenge my notion of what life makes meaningful. Uh, that book is such a gift. And I'm so glad that that's what he was working on before he passed away. I definitely don't only read books that I think will make me smarter. I read a lot of young adult fiction because I think teenagers ask the best questions. I don't know where I heard this, but I think one of the differences between nonfiction and fiction is nonfiction is in a way telling you what to do or how to think or how to live. And fiction is like not explicit about any of those things. Like it becomes a part of your source code, really. Something that I can definitely relate to is the sense that nonfiction, and particularly business books, they tell you how to think versus fiction, which doesn't necessarily tell you, but they'll tell you a good story and then you can kind of decide for yourself. And one of my favorite writers, Morgan Haswell of Collaborative Fund. Yeah, no, his writing is great. Oh, I was agree. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he had an article where he talked about how, broadly speaking, there are three kinds of writing. You know, you can give facts, just statistics, you can give opinions, or what you can do and what he strives to do is to give both and then help the reader to extend their thinking. And to me, those are the, the pieces of writing, the podcast that I love the most. It's not necessarily the host or the author is telling me, you know, you should think this, you should buy into the thing that I believe. It's really yeah. just them challenging. Here's how you may see the world. 
here's, I guess, a world in which you could see things differently. Yeah. The other thing I really like about Morgan Hazel's writing is just how hopeful it is. In, in some way, he kind of, his writing has the same effect on me as reading Carl Sagan or Richard Feynman or watching some of their videos about, you know, this is such a good time to be alive. And there's so much to be optimistic about. Uh, and venture capital in particular is obviously, you know, a very optimistic space. You know, you're cheering on founders and trying to believe ways yeah. in which they can make the world better. It's, a, it's an easy spot to be optimistic from. I tweeted about this yesterday. I was like, that. I think that's what gives venture its ultimate privilege. It's true. And founders, you know, they really need people like that because they're the ones with, you know, these very difficult tasks and jobs. Vedika, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope to talk again soon. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. And for our listeners, where might they be able to find you? Uh, sure. So on Twitter, it's Vedika, J-A underscore I-N. It's just my full name, basically, with an underscore. You can also email me at vedika at weekend.fund. Great. We will link to those in the show notes. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vedika. This has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.